2: Hang Up and Listen fans, people who are listening for the first time might hear a bad word or two.
1: Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 5th, 2022. On this week's show, we'll discuss where Kevin Durant might end up, what Kyrie Irving has to do with it, and how the Brooklyn Nets got into this mess. We'll also talk about UCLA and USC moving to the Big Ten for some reason and where college sports goes from here. And we'll assess the verbal sparring and occasional tennis ball pegging between Nick Kyrgios and Stefano Tsitsipas at Wimbledon. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the book's Word Freak few seconds of panic and wild and outside. Hey, Stefan, there might be an opportunity to use some Greek this week.
0: That's Stefanos, Fatsis to you.
1: And from California, it's Slate Staff Writer and the host of seasons three and six of Slow Burn, Joel Anderson, wearing glasses. Joel, I just feel so much closer to you knowing that geography is no longer a barrier between us. We can and will be in the same conference.
2: We're all power five conferences in my book, you know. Either Josh or I are going to have to move to Nebraska, though,
0: to make it more realistic.
2: Or we could just pick somebody up in Eugene or Seattle or something. Give me a little bit, you know, easier travel schedule so that Mm -hmm. I can tune in from out here.
0: A week ago Monday, Kyrie Irving exercised a $36.5 million option, and it seemed as if he'd run it back with Kevin Durant for a fourth and hopefully less tumultuous season with the Brooklyn Nets. But then on Thursday, Durant asked the Nets to trade him, specifically to Miami or Phoenix. This was all pretty confusing. My first thought was that Durant was dissing Kyrie, who missed dozens of games last season, of course, because he wouldn't get vaxxed. But no, reports emerged that Durant still actually loves Kyrie, no hard feelings, and wants to play with Kyrie, just not in Brooklyn, and that actually he, Durant, was pissed at the Nets over various aspects of the recent tumult. Joel, am I getting this right? Two of the best players in the NBA want to leave their team, and their team doesn't want them either, but unlike in other cases of stars seeking to move, Durant and Irving have no leverage beyond their talent. They're under contract, and they've pissed off the team that's trying to accommodate them. But unlike in other cases of stars seeking to move, Durant and Irving have no leverage beyond their talent. They're under contract, and they've pissed off the team that's trying to accommodate them. What a glorious
2: mess. Do you know what I think about when you bring all this up? I think back to June of last year um, when we had on Sam Anderson of the New York Times Magazine – And Sam had written this lengthy profile on Kevin Durant. And the headline was, Kevin Durant and possibly the greatest basketball team of all time. Um, The Brooklyn Nets were built to be an unbeatable super team of eccentric basketball superstars. Will they dominate the NBA playoffs? And how far we've come in a little over a year. But the thing about it is that, um, that you can't tell from me reading that headline is that possibly was in parentheses on that headline. And for a lot of the reasons that they broke up today, they're super eccentric guys. Kevin Durant is a guy that is perpetually on like some sort of basketball journey that we don't know quite where it's going to end or where exactly he wants to go. But here you are in Kyrie Irving, notoriously undependable um, an eccentric himself. And James Harden is already gone. Like he's already played in the playoffs for somebody else uh, for this Philadelphia 76ers. So, um, I just think that, like, obviously it's a huge mess, as you mentioned, but a lot of it was foreseeable. Like, we knew that these were, this was a combustible mix and it was just as likely that they were going to win an NBA championship or that it was going to end in this way. I and mean, here's the thing. We don't know that it's going to end that way. They haven't been traded yet. They could still run it back. I mean, there's nothing stopping the Nets and Josiah from saying, you know what, we've got deals. We can't get a good deal. We've had some deals on the table. We haven't found anything that we like. You're going to have to run it back. We've got you all under contract. So um, anything could happen, as far as we know, from right here, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing that always gets brought up is Kobe Bryant making trade demands of the Lakers that were a lot more vociferous than this one is by Durant and a lot more public in terms of bad the organization. And they managed to walk back from it and win more championships post- uh, trade demands but doesn't seem like that's what's going to happen here and I feel like we can be a little bit too ready to kind of talk about how foreseeable it was because there was more there was definitely more optimism than pessimism here definitely in comparison to say like the Lakers acquiring Russell Westbrook like that was something that was that seemed like maybe it was going to work and you could kind of talk yourself into it. And the Lakers were, you know, they had pretty good good betting odds in terms of... Wait, Josh, what do you mean? Do you mean pessimism in terms of like... I think there were definitely way more people saying that the Nets were an unbeatable super team than saying, yeah, this might not work out. Especially compared oh. to to the Lakers where people did talk themselves into that trio, but there was a lot of like kind of uh, concern about Russell Westbrook in this stage of his career and his ability. Whereas with Kyrie, he had talked and walked himself out of Cleveland and out of Boston, that there was a lot of um, antipathy there from those fan bases towards him. But this was all built around the premise that Kyrie was going to be happy in Brooklyn and Kevin Durant was going to be happy that this is what they want. And their talent is and was unassailable. And then when James Harden got there, um, there are a lot of headlines. I'm sure you can find Joel as you're busily typing away, trying to disprove me here, saying that this was the best offensive trio and the best offensive team of all time. Um, And when they were on the court together for the 13 minutes that they were on court, I haven't actually checked that, they were awesome. And so what are you gonna tell me now, Joel, about, about how I'm wrong about this?
2: Yes. Of course, there were a lot of people that thought they'd be great. But there were also just as many people, to my memory at least, saying as good as those Nets were on offense, they were historically bad on defense. Kyrie was already showing that he was wildly erratic, having left Cleveland and Boston under the circumstances he did. KD was coming off of an Achilles injury, which is not – I mean, he recovered and played really well, but there was no – there's not really um, a precedent for anybody being that good – After an Achilles injury, especially at his age, Steve Nash was a rookie coach. We didn't know anything about what kind of coach he was going to be. And there's already concerns, you know, with Kyrie's like, hey, we we could all be coach. And then they sacrificed a lot of depth to get James Harden. So I still think that, like, yes, there was a belief that they were going to be a great team. They had shown in 13 minutes, as you said, that they could be a really good team, but I think there were just as many doubts. I don't. I don't think that anybody thought that this was some sort of a foolproof scheme to win a championship because there were just as many questions as there were things that they could count on. I. I think, but Stefan, maybe I don't know. Did, did, was that? I can't remember what you thought about this when this team formed together. Did you think that they were going to be, a you know, a juggernaut?
0: I can't remember what I thought when this team was put together either, but. Durant missed the entire 2019-20 season when this team was, you know, when he and Irving uh, went to New Jersey. So, really, not much to base on how great this was going to be, this experiment was going to be. And then in 2020-21, they were both healthy, and they started with with a lot of off-the-court bullshit, um, belittling Steve Nash. Irving missed, uh, just disappeared for a week early in the season, violated COVID-19 protocols. Um then they, as you said, traded a lot of depth to get Harden and they almost beat the Bucs, who went on to win the NBA championship in the second round. Um, so obviously, you know, I mean to say that like they couldn't have been the best team in the NBA is silly because the three of them last year and the year before were really great basketball players still. I mean, that's in that's unassailable.
1: There's a lot of history also in basketball and other sports of teams succeeding. With just unbelievable amounts of acrimony and bull and bullshit and dysfunction, sure. going back to, you know, you want to talk about the Yankees and A's and baseball in the '70s, or the Lakers with Shaq and and Kobe. Just the fact that these people didn't get along and belittled their coach and and all of that. There's no reason that they couldn't have have won a final. I'm
2: just pushing back on the idea that it was ever seemed inevitable that like that 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 it was as inevitable as the breakup. Like I think that you could have. People on both sides of that argument had a good case for why it would work and why it wouldn't work, and that's why when the New York Times Magazine puts Kevin Durant on its cover, they put possibly in parentheses because everybody knew that this was just as, this was just as likely to blow up as it was to end with the you know the Larry O'B you know or possibly as just your to be sure graph there, and they believed
0: that it was inevitable that this would be the best team ever. I mean the the strangest thing to me in all of this right now is that James Harden is coming out of this looking like the most rational and sensible <laughs> person involved in any of this and it feels like, you know, Kyrie's Kyrie whatever crazy some he'll get traded somewhere for something. Um but Durant's image is the one that feels like the weirdest to me. This is his fourth team in, what, eight years? Um, we don't really have a sense of what happened internally in terms of the relationship between him and the organization.
1: It would be his fourth team if he gets traded, you mean?
0: If he gets traded, right. It would be his fourth team. Um you know, his desire to move regularly is either, A, a sign of the empowerment of players in this era, or it's a sign of something something that we can't quite pinpoint about him and his desires and his personality and his needs. So it's all really weird right now in terms of trying to assess who's in the right here. I mean, are the Nets just—is the Nets owner Joe Tsai standing up and saying— I'm done with this bullshit. Let's get these guys out of here. I don't care if it affects our team. Let's get as much as we can for them and move forward and just flush this experiment. Or are the players the one that are legitimately aggrieved and deserving of of finding a happier home?
2: You could understand if Josiah felt that way, but wouldn't that be really immature? Like, as a businessman, you know that if you hold KD and Kyrie to their contracts and make them come back, no matter what, they're still one of the league favorites next year, right? Like you could t- totally be sick of their bullshit and Kyrie not getting vaxxed and Kevin Durant being, you know, iffy about wanting to be there. But once you get them back on the floor, once they play, that's all that matters. And if he's getting rid of them just because he's annoyed, then that's like bad business. Um, because there's n- under no circumstances will the Brooklyn Nets bring back a return equivalent to what they would get rid of, right? If they if they get rid of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, they're not bringing back anything like what they're getting rid of. So um, if if I were a Nets fan, uh, I would hope that Josiah could get over it and get over his annoyance. But who's to say right now at this point how he feels about it? And again, they're still on the Nets. They haven't been traded yet. This is all rumor. Like, we're, again, we're, I mean, there's a lot of, of this talk about he might go here, there's a wish list, all this other stuff. This is all stuff that's been reported. But, I mean... It's, it wouldn't be the first time that people got this stuff wrong, right?
1: <laughs> okay. Two things. Eight things. 2021-2022 NBA preseason odds. Mm. Brooklyn Nets plus 230. half win-loss over-under. Mm. Both best in the NBA. Lakers were number two in terms of odds and win-loss over-under, Warriors were fourth. Seems like uh, people were pretty bullish on a team that had equal chance of being successful and unsuccessful.
2: 56 wins, we're not talking about the 86 Celtics. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that, that's a very good total.
1: Vegas thought that the Nets were the best team in the NBA that's all I was saying that seems like they mm-hmm. people were pretty optimistic about them how can you be better than the best team Vegas is compelling people to vote on the idea that they they know
2: that they that people believe that the Nets are the best team and that they set that that line there <laughs> so people will vote on it not Vegas is a right, that. Joel. right I'm just I, all right I just do right don't don't try I mean again I, don't make me feel like I'm crazy because I'm like the one that <laughs> the people were saying hey man I don't know Katie and Kyrie who knows what the hell they might do
1: I'm not saying that it was Wrong to think that. I'm just saying that most people didn't think that or didn't mm. uh, behave as if the, as if that was true. The other thing is, superstars always get their way in the NBA. This notion that Joe Tsai should just kind of ride it out and be like, eh, maybe they'll maybe they'll be happy and get along <laughs> like that. What evidence do we have um, from the last several years that a discontented Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving would lead to? Um, a happy environment. I realize that I'm uh, contradicting myself in saying that there's been a lot of uh, examples where discontented players have won championships and have have gotten through it, but it seems like there's not really a pathway here for that, that there have been years worth of evidence and examples with this franchise, with these players, with this coach, with this ownership group that it's just not going to happen?
0: Why should it happen? I mean, Kyrie Irving did all of this. He is responsible for the bulk of the dysfunction on this team in the last year and maybe two years. You know, the Nets decided not to offer him a, a max contract, which they could have done, and forced him to accept that option for the coming season. And this is clearly that... Us, you know they were signaling that we don't want you and that's maybe a hard line and maybe you know you think it's weird that a team would say we don't want Kyrie Irving or even Kevin Durant like you know they're still under contract we could force them to come back but you know Josh is right in that players tend to get what they want um you know the destination in this place in this case is what seems to be you know unknown and really unknown because of the difficulty in trading either of these guys.
1: I will say this about Durant. You were kind of suggesting, Stefan the, the the case against him, or at least the case that maybe he's a bit mm-hmm. more of a, the issue here than some might realize. I find it impossible to be mad at Kevin Durant, kind of ever. Ever, yeah. Because uh, – and Ben Mathis Lily really did a good piece about this for mm-hmm. Slate. Um, what Durant has has done here that you might – kind of label problematic, standing by Kyrie Irving, arguing that the Nets should have been crazily more accommodating to Kyrie Irving. Let him, you know, play and practice on the the road. Like, give him a, a max extension when he just, like, never plays. Durant wanting to, like, change workplaces because he just feels unhappy and slighted. These are just extremely human impulses, like wanting to be loyal to your friend, wanting to work somewhere where you feel valued, and appreciated um, being mad at people on Twitter. Like, none of these things, none of this is, like, anything approaching bad behavior or even unsympathetic Mm -hmm. behavior, in my view. He does have four years left on his contract, and so you could argue, Joel, like, he needs to honor this. He signed this deal. But, like, in the world of sports, like, and the code, whatever code there is around how, athletes should behave and how teams behave towards athletes, being like, I don't want to be here anymore. And I want to go to another team. It's like totally within the realm of standard and um, acceptable behavior in like modern sports world. And so to argue that Durant is doing something like crazy or out of the mainstream, I I think is wrong.
0: Or you can argue that a lot of people face these kinds of issues in their workplace and they try to find ways to work through them. I mean, he is blessed. Yeah, but there with, limits. He is blessed with like playing with another one of the best players in of his generation on this team, with a third dude, Ben Simmons, who who knows, maybe he'll be good again. Um, it's not like the Nets are short of assets for the coming season. Um, so I don't know. Could you argue that? Yeah, maybe Durant should be having like, and maybe he has. We don't know. Should be having serious conversations with the front office to try to mend all of this and be a leader and try to repair these relationships. Um, or, as you're saying, yeah, he's upset with his workplace and just going to try to find another one, which is totally fine.
2: Yeah, I mean, Kevin Durant is right. Like, he he doesn't have to necessarily be sympathetic, but I understand what you're coming from. I mean, he, you know, he's not the first person that said, "Hey, I want to work with my boy." And his boy let him down, and he'd be like, ah, I don't know if this is what I want to do, and maybe I want to start over somewhere else. And I'm actually, I'm going back to Sam's profile from a year ago, and I thought this was really sort of telling, because I think this is how he sees himself. This is sort of like, I'm not going to say fake deep, but this is sort of how he sees himself. And he showed me his lock screen, a picture of a desert nomad, alone at night, riding a camel. <laughs> That's all of us walking in the desert by ourselves. Sometimes he told me, "I mean, that's, I mean, to me, in a lot of ways, that kind of explains a lot of what we're getting out of Kevin Durant here. That he sees himself sort of, kind of, also
1: explains why he likes Kyrie Irving.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just kind of out there on their own, man. They're kind of mercenaries and um, you know, or lone wolves, or whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. or lone camels. You know, and so." they don't necessarily have any allegiance to a team or franchise or whatever. And I think that's, that's come up before that like his, his devotion is to the game and it doesn't matter where he plays. um, He can do it somewhere else. He doesn't have necessarily the fealty to franchises that, other superstars have. And I think that that's something that NBA fans and people that cover the league are sort of grappling with. They're like, this guy doesn't give a shit like that he left Oklahoma City or Golden State or is leaving Brooklyn under these weird circumstances. Like, he likes basketball and he feels like, I play in the NBA and wherever I play, I'm playing in the NBA. And that's bottom line. So um he he's just taking a fundamentally different approach to this than fans and we're just going to have to learn to deal with it um i mean it'll probably result in him being booed and people trying to denigrate him and i already see what people were doing after the finals and trying to say that steph curry was better than him which you know at least to me is absurd because we we saw those finals but um it just seems like it's kind of doubling in on itself right that He's making these decisions, people get mad at him, and he just kind of retreats further within himself.
1: I think maybe we should talk about what teams should do that are in acquisition mode around Durant. I think maybe we should do that in the bonus segment. So look forward to that, Slate Plus members. But for now, I will say that my view on this is incredibly unsophisticated. If we're talking about from like a personal human level, I just find Durant really likable as a a person. Um, he's he's not a perfect person, but, like, I enjoyed kind of spending time with him in that profile. I enjoyed watching the interview he did with David Letterman on Netflix. Uh, I think he's a great basketball player. I think he shows up and is available for his teams, and he's really fun to watch. And I think Kyrie Irving is, like, not really any of those things, just as, like, a fan, from a fan perspective. He's not somebody... You can um count on being able to watch. He takes himself kind of incredibly seriously, and the ways in which he kind of talks about himself and his team are range from being ridiculous to toxic. And so whether what Durant is saying and doing here is entirely defensible, I just like him, and I feel like he's built up a lot of kind of goodwill with me as a fan Mm -hmm. and observer, and as like a neutral person who doesn't, you know, not a fan of any of the teams that he's been on.
2: Josh, you know what Kyrie would say about what you just said about him right now? What's that? You're a pawn.
1: (laughs) Maybe I am, Kyrie, but I'm a pawn who enjoys watching Kevin Durant play basketball.
0: Up next, we'll talk about the University of Southern California and the University of California, Los Angeles playing in the Big Town.
1: Terms apply.
2: We're recording this segment Tuesday morning, the same day administrators at the University of Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah are reportedly scheduled to meet with Big 12 conference officials. So by the time you listen to this podcast, it's quite possible that the Pac-12, the conference that's won more NCAA championships in team sports than any other in history, might no longer exist. The league's sharp decline started Thursday when John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News reported that USC and UCLA were going to leave the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. Thus, USC and UCLA's closest conference opponent is now Nebraska, which is almost 1,400 miles away, and is another school that doesn't quite feel right in the formerly Midwestern-centric Big Ten. But that's to be expected in this new era of college realignment, which seems to be moving toward two super conferences in the Big Ten and SEC and a bunch of minor leagues for the likes of Oregon State, Kansas, and Cal. You know, Josh, I know you must feel secure knowing that your beloved LSU will have a spot in the college football super league. But, I mean, what in the hell do you make of all this?
1: So I think I might actually be wise to try to not be a prisoner of the moment here. Because if we think of this as the end point of like, isn't it ridiculous The USC and UCLA are in um, the Big Ten? Like, you know, UCLA versus Rutgers and uh, a, a midweek baseball game or something. Isn't that ridiculous or silly or, or terrible? Like, yeah, it is. But it just feels like this is so obviously a first step into everything blowing up into there being a, a super league into there being like whatever the equivalent is of the AFC and the NFC in college sports with like whether they're called the big 10 or the sec or not like those teams like playing in the super bowl or, or whatever. It just feels like if we get kind of caught up in the details of this, um, then we're maybe going to miss out on the bigger picture that this is just obviously um, a, a signal that everything is gonna change. But Stefan, it feels like those details are also like actually kind of important. Like the, the fact that this doesn't really seem to serve fans um, in any way. Um, that it sort of obliterates the regionalism that helped fuel the growth and rise of college sports and has helped kind of distinguish it mm-hmm from professional sports. I mean, there's all these phony ways, the main one being amateurism, that's like a false um, claim about why college sports are different. But I think the fact that there is this sort of regionalism is that is a real reason why college sports feel different and are perceived differently than professional sports.
0: No, if anything, I think that this has been underplayed in the last week during these conversations about about the USC and UCLA. I mean, go back and look at the Big Ten. It was founded in the 19th century in 1896, and it basically established the framework for college sports in America. Regionalism, like-minded institutions that shared academic and research philosophies. Um, the growth of college sports was predicated on regionalism and natural rivalries between and among schools. And secondarily, as it turned into the multi-billion dollar business that we know, um, a way to ensure that students, um, could participate in sports. And still be able to, you know, not travel cross country the way professional athletes do on a regular basis. Um, you know, the, the lacrosse players and the, the, the field hockey players and the baseball players that are going to have to spend five hours on airplanes, um, is a legitimate concern here. And I think it also speaks to, the, what you brought out, that this is not the end, obviously, you know, and whether it's that the Big Ten has an East, you know, a Midwest conference and an East conference and a West conference or that there are two giant super conferences divided up into what, you know, we recognize as regional conferences or whatever the status is going to be, the situation is going to be. This is obviously not the end because that's really not tenable to be putting, you know, volleyball players on airplanes for, you know, twice a week to travel cross-country. um, And, you know, but the driving force here, Joel, of course, is money and television. Um, You know, the USC and UCLA are going to double their annual amount just based on current contracts. And those contracts are going to go up for the Big Ten because of the addition of Los Angeles as a market.
2: Right. And I mean, I guess, I, you know, we know that essentially, you know, Fox is behind a lot of this, right? That because they own the Big Ten rights and, you know, they're they're encouraging a lot of these moves in the same way that ESPN, you know, may have had a, you know, a hand behind Texas and OU going to SEC and and, and that's so I the I have a friend that works in um, you know, that does a lot of these media rights stuff, and I'm just like, are there really fans that want this, like that, that not just do they want it, but are they going to watch it? And he says, well, it almost doesn't matter because they're going to put the money out front. But I mean, just fans and I guess league executives, when they're putting these leagues together, they think that the programming is all marquee weekend football games, that it's Bama and Georgia, Bama and LSU, LSU Florida, Penn State, Michigan State. But these conferences are more like, no, Vanderbilt versus South Carolina, Indiana versus Minnesota. And I know that these are still all mostly large state schools, but seriously, like who cares about these programs outside of their own alums? I just feel like this is a big bet that college football is making. um, And a lot of the college football executives are making. And I, I'm dubious as to whether or not it's going to be able to make back the money that they think it's going to and that it's going to retain its own appeal. Because, you know, the only people that are excited about this are the people that get paid off of it. But if you're a kid that signs up to go to USC or UCLA, how how exciting is it to actually go play at Indiana or Purdue, right? Like, it. I mean, maybe it wasn't exciting to go to Tempe and play at Arizona State, but I don't, I mean, I don't think kids in California dream about going and playing in, you know, West Lafayette. You know what I mean? And so I just... I, I don't... You're right. I don't see how this benefits recruiting
0: for every other sport than football and maybe basketball.
1: Yeah. It helps them recruit people from the Midwest, probably, who are... I get to go to school in Southern California. Right. And then I get to go home to, play, so my family can, can watch me play. That seems like a nice uh, recruiting pitch for, like, some limited set of people. But, Joel, I mean, I think... One of the fundamental issues here is that football is driving this and everybody else is kind of along for the ride. It just seems like in so many different ways and for so many different reasons, football just needs to be separate yes, from yes. everything else. So, like, yes. why, why can't it be that USC and UCLA are joining up with these other schools or with Miami and Clemson and LSU and Texas A&M, everybody who... Is on that plane, um, revenue wise, football wise, why can't they just break off and do, um, a football thing? Which seems like there is actually an argument for doing and just do that and not wreck everything else.
2: But then it becomes even clearer that this has nothing to do with the college's academic mission, right? That football is TV programming and it's a, it's the front porch of an academic institution, but it's not necessarily a part of it. And when you break it off like that, then you're just saying, oh, okay, we're just putting together, we're bringing these kids here to have a TV show, I think.
0: You're assuming that that university presidents actually think that way at this point, that they they still buy into the charade of the front porch. They
2: want us to believe it, even as, like, I, I think increasingly fewer people believe it, but I think that, like, they still have to keep the facade up. In one way or another.
0: But their actions say otherwise. Their actions say we are moving as fast as we can down the road toward legitimizing or institutionalizing the reality of what college football is. And I think Josh is right. I mean, I think that football should be completely separate and the best schools – and then all the second-tier Division I schools should just come up with some sort of conference realignment that divvies up the hordes of, of, of TV money in some sort of equitable way. I mean, the issue is that the top, whatever it is, 32 or 64, if you're being really generous, schools don't want to share. This has been the issue with, with football for the last 40 years that the biggest schools do not want to be subsidizing division two and division three or even the bottom feeders in division one. Um, and the, the, you know, the need or the ability of these schools to finally break away and say, fuck y'all, we're just going to do this is, I think, what is paramount here. And maybe that's where the facade still exists. The, that these, that the presidents of the biggest universities don't want to appear that they are deliberately crushing everybody else, whereas up to now, it's been okay to sort of subtly and quietly and incrementally do it.
2: Well, just think about how, like, I mean, ridiculous it is that a year ago, the Pac-12, the ACC, and was it the Big Ten, had that alliance, supposedly. They didn't sign any, you know, contracts because it was a gentleman's agreement, and they were going to discuss how this new round of alignment would be beneficial to all of them. And, you know, they were sort of casting themselves as different from the SEC, which was obviously, you know, just money grabbing capitalist. And, you know, uh, they were not thinking about the student athlete experience or any of this other stuff. And so all these other conferences were teaming up. And then here we are a year later, and you see that it was all a ruse. And so that's, I mean, that's, that's why I think that, you know, they're going to drag, they're going to drag these volleyball teams and soccer teams all across the country, because they still need They still need to hide behind the idea that this is all part of some larger academic mission. Not that it's actually true, but that, you know, that this is what they need to do so that they don't have to pay the players as well, too, right? Like, oh, there's there's legitimate reasons for this. To me, beyond that piece of it, I would be curious to know what you all think. Well, I guess I kind of know what you're going to say, but none of this sounds fun, right? Like, Josh shared this post from a West Virginia fan over the weekend talking about what has happened to West Virginia's athletic program since the all this realignment. And they've been in a bunch of different leagues and they've been in the Big 12 for like the last decade or so. And none of this actually sounds fun for anybody, right? Like, I mean, I know that these are big brands or whatever, but like, what about this actually sounds fun?
1: Well, yeah, the West Virginia thing is like, that they don't play any of the schools anymore that they had rivalries with and are geographically close to them. And the the thing that I keep coming back to is that it's inarguable that NIL rules and the transfer portal have totally transformed college sports, but they've transformed college sports in a way that doesn't make it worse for fans. Um, it makes it worse for coaches, probably, mm-hmm. or at least makes their lives harder and, and more complicated. Um, but it's the kind of change, it's a kind of radical change in college sports that is, compared to this, I think, actually kind of conservative. It's like, what does it do fundamentally? It allows players to continue to put on the uniforms of these, like, traditional powers. It, like, strengthens the traditional powers in the sport in certain ways because they're the ones that have the most money um, and can do the best job recruiting and and retaining these players and allows them them to have the best players in these big television matchups that people want to watch. Whereas this realignment stuff and having USC and UCLA not play Cal and, and Stanford um, and, and Oregon anymore and instead playing these these various uh, Big Ten teams and having all, all of the other kind of wheeling and dealing that we're gonna see now. That's like the plates shifting if we're gonna go in a uh, tectonic metaphor and why not? That is really what alters the sport for fans and players, and it's these administrators and, like Joel was saying, these television rights holders—they're the ones who, on the one hand, are like complaining about how the sport is being destroyed by NIL or whatever, but they're the ones that have the capacity to destroy destroy the sport or to change it in ways that are that are fundamental in ways that um, will really. Altered the fan experience. They're the ones that made it so Texas and Texas A&M don't play anymore. Although I guess maybe they will now in the the SEC. And like those are the games that people want to watch and people care about Joel. Um, Right. But like with with all this inventory that Fox and ESPN are going to have, people will still watch those games. Live sports still do get really good Ratings, but um, it does feel a little bit pennywise and and pan foolish if we're thinking about the long term future of these sports.
2: Yeah, the thing that that brings you in, and I I'll just real briefly center myself in this. The first year I played college football was the first year after the breakup of the Southwest Conference, and so TCU became part of the sixteen team WAC. I don't know if people remember that. So you know they 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 took four of the schools from the old Southwest Conference: TCU, uh, Rice. I remember. You see, I mean, it was so. It was just such a mishmash. I don't remember. I know. I remember that we played Tulsa a lot. I felt like we ended up playing Tulsa all the (laughs) fucking time. But um, and it was just like that's not why I was excited about college football. Like I was excited to see Texas and Texas A and M and a lot of kids that grew up in Texas, you know, grew up loving those rivalries and you know, living and dying by them. And then all of a sudden, we're playing, you know, at BYU. For some reason, Um, you know, we did play against Steve Sarkeesian my freshman year. Steve Sarkeesian was quarterback at BYU. But I'm not saying that kids are not going to get used to it and they won't develop new rivalries and there won't be a new way for people to engage with the sport. Um, But I think the thing that always made college football cool and it was kind of touched on in the 30 for 30 pony excess um, that all of these guys in Dallas, these business guys, they like had, they like to have bragging rights among their regional rivals, man. And like that piece of it is gone. And I just can't see the same sort of enthusiasm for. I mean, ask ask Maryland fans right now. I'm sure we have Maryland fans and Rutgers fans that listen to this podcast. I would love for you all to reach in and tell me how exciting it is for you all to play in the Big Ten. Is it cool? Are you having fun? Really? I don't. Well,
1: Tom Tom Skoka actually wrote about this recently because he's a big Maryland basketball mm-hmm. fan. Um, And Maryland basketball hasn't been as good as it was during the Gary Williams years. But he said, like, he doesn't follow Maryland basketball anymore. They don't play the the ACC teams that they had great rivalries with. Right, which all speaks to the
0: larger inevitability that college football particularly and basketball secondarily are going to get reorganized in a system that doesn't ignore these realities, um, these regional fan-driven um, and logic-driven um, partnerships. It, it just makes no sense that USC and UCLA will be the only two West Coast schools playing in a conference with, you know, a bunch of other schools in the Midwest and East, right? This can't be the end point. It will not be the end point. And I think that's we're, t- we're being short-sighted to even think about it as an end point.
1: I do want to say one thing bec- before um, we kill the topic, which is that there is a sense in which from USC's perspective, they were the Pac-12. Like, they were propping up this whole league. They're the showcase school, the showcase market, the only reason that the Pac-12 was relevant, if we're talking about football specifically. And UCLA, obviously, has is kind of a, a blue-chip program and, and basketball, and they've got nice uniforms and all that stuff, too. Great but, uniforms. Mm-hmm. I can understand how the Pac-12 wasn't really working for USC, that the other schools weren't holding up their end of the bargain. And you could kind of see that, Joel, with Lincoln Riley moving there from Oklahoma and how everyone was like, oh, my God, the Pac-12 is saved. And Like, if one coach moving to one school is, like, going to save the whole conference, then the conference is probably not super healthy. And I can understand, like, now in retrospect, it seems like, yeah, they were a flight risk. Like, and that... They want to be in a place where, you know, sort of like Barcelona and Madrid are propping up La Liga or whatever. Mm. Like Now, like, the anomaly seems like the Super League getting disbanded in soccer. So, like, everything is moving in this direction. Nobody wants scarcity. Like, there's interleague play in baseball now. Like, the fact that LSU and Michigan have never played in college football, it's like, kind of, like, a cool thing that's, like, always kind of dangling. Like, maybe they'll play one... Like, they'll probably play, like, you know, every year, <laughs> starting <laughs> starting in three years from now. It's just, like, nobody wants a system where the, like, showcase programs are just, like, off on an island somewhere and not playing the other showcase programs. It's just, like, a worldwide trend. And so, um, yeah, it's just obviously not an end point, um, and this is like the world we're all living in now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, USC, man, ask uh, Nebraska what it's like to be a former big dog, you know, consumed by an even bigger dog, you know? So that's, sometimes it's pretty cool to 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 run your own yard, you know what I'm saying? And the next segment, we're going to talk about tennis fight.
1: In this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're gonna continue our conversation about Kevin Durant and look more closely at where he might go, where he should go, and if you're a fan of one of those teams, whether you should want him to go to there. If you want to hear that, then you need to be a Slate Plus member and you don't just get bonus segments on this show and other Slate shows. You also get to listen to Slate podcasts ad-free and you get the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting our work. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. If you didn't see what happened on Saturday between Nick Kyrgios and Stefano Tsitsipas at Wimbledon, why don't you listen to snippets of their post-match press conferences and then try to imagine what happened. First up, here's Stefan's countryman, the 23-year-old from Greece, Mr.
3: Tsitsipas. Yeah, it's, it's constant bullying. That's what he does. He bullies his opponents. He was probably a bully at school himself. You don't know what's behind. I don't like bullies. I don't like people that put people, other people down. Uh, he has some good traits in, in his character as well, but when he uh, he also has a very evil side to him, which if if, ex- if it's exposed, it can really uh, do a lot of harm and, and bad to the people around him.
1: Now, on the other side, the 27-year-old from Australia, Mr. Curious, and his press conference was after Tsitsipas' press conference.
2: I don't know what to say. I'm not sure how I bullied him last like. I was, he was the one hitting balls at me. He was the one that hit a spectator. He was the one that smacked it out of the stadium. I didn't do anything. I was actually like, apart from me just going back and forth with the umpire for a bit, I did nothing towards Stefanos today that was disrespectful, I don't think. I was not drilling him with balls. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. But, like, What do you think?
1: Thanks for asking. Well, first of all, this all feels a lot less lighthearted after a report came out on Tuesday from Curios's hometown, Canberra Times, saying he's been summoned to court on allegations that he's assaulted a former girlfriend. Um, but over the weekend, the conversation was focused, as it often is, on Kyrgios' on-court behavior. But this time, it wasn't just his on-court behavior. It started with him getting a code violation for an audible obscenity, but then Sitsipas whacked a ball into the stands, nearly hitting a spectator, presumably because he was irritated that Kyrgios was talking constantly, and that Kyrios also hit an underhand serve between his legs. Then Kyros got extremely agitated that Sitsipas didn't get defaulted from the match for whacking the ball into the stands. And then Sitsipas started whacking balls at Kurios at every possible opportunity. Stefan, you watched all of this go down. How would you describe What happened on the court and what the experience was like watching it?
0: Well, Kyrios's on-court antics aren't new, of course. We've discussed his complicated personality on this show before with our friend Louisa Thomas, uh, who profiled him in 2017. Um, Kyrgios believes in creating chaos, in creating distractions during matches, rushing his serve, talking while his opponent is serving, arguing with officials, shouting at his box— gesticulating, using his opponent's towels, even. Uh, Some of this seems organic, part of his tennis personality and his general personality, but some of it is, as he has admitted, manufactured to get inside the head and under the skin of his opponents and attempt to gain a psychological advantage, perceived or not, which, okay, is part of the game, but often outside the bounds of the game and just sort of lapses into trolling. Uh, Kyrgios can be a bully on the court, and he was a bully on Saturday, I thought, watching this. And yeah, full disclosure, I like Tsitsipas. Um, You know, and Tsitsipas, like others, has had issues with Kyrios in the past, should have known better. He fell for it. And most important, the match official didn't stop it. Our friend John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated tweeted that Tsitsipas you know, he of the soft-focused Instagram pics and Hallmark tweets is singularly ill-suited for this environment. And that seems right. He is sweet and sincere and a little bit naive and doesn't seem to have a sort of killer instinct. But it's also kind of beside the point. Tsitsipas shouldn't have to be suited to the environment. Instead of trying to hit Kyrios with shots in frustration, maybe Tsitsipas should have called out the bully directly in Greek Kyrios' father is from Cyprus, and he speaks Greek too. Maybe he should have shouted something like, Ftani malaka, tine to problemashu, and staged his own protest to the umpire.
2: Well, so actually, that's a great question, Stephanie. So how often does that happen, where a tennis player is like yelling at another one from across the net? Because uh, that would even amp it up a little bit more, because like a lot mm-hmm. of people, I was seeing the tweets about what was going on in the Kyrgios' Cyprus match, and you know, I'm a casual tennis fan you know i'll watch the the williams sisters or whatever but i'm not you know a, a huge fan like you all and then i'm just seeing it seems like it's escalating and i'm like oh shit are these guys about to get into it or whatever um so like would it have really been that out of character i mean obviously like people aren't yelling at each other but like what would have happened if he had yelled wouldn't that have been even more out of character with what the the atmosphere is like at wimbledon anyway
1: yeah so it isn't that Common for players to confront um, each other directly over the net. It certainly has happened. But it it is funny how the chair umpire, like a person literally like sitting in a very tall chair, <laughs> looming over the court, assumes this role of both being the authority figure on the court, but also being completely powerless or seeing themselves as being completely powerless. And it's just like the player's are having, each having conversations with the chair umpire about the other person while the other person can hear it. It's just a like, very weird and passive-aggressive mm-hmm. and kind of un- unhealthy dynamic. I mean, I think one of the things that was really pissing off Sitsipas was that Kyrgios was spending, maybe cumulatively in the match, a half hour... Just yelling at the chair umpire about mm-hmm. Sitsipas, about how he needs to be defaulted, about how if it had been curious who had the ball in the stands, he would have been defaulted. Fact check: true. Um, there is, a, I think, a, a level of <laughs> of accuracy with with that claim. And then Sitsipas goes to the chair and complains about curious in full earshot of curious Then after the match, they um, go complain about each other in their press conferences. Then they send, like, social media posts uh, about each other afterwards. And so the, the thing that is not happening here is them either having a conversation or directly confronting each other, which seems like what they both maybe want and need to do. It's just tennis is so weird. Like, the, the things that are considered indecorous. Right. Um, And the things that are, like, curios spends... Every match, just like yelling at the lines, people like in the first, in the first round at Wimbledon, he was just like railing. You can't fucking decide to talk to me in the middle of the point when I'm about to do a backhand. It can't be happening, bro. He called the umpire, (laughs) he (laughs) called the woman uh, on the line a snitch for going to the umpire and and talking about him. And so, you know, Stefan, there are ways in which Kyrgios' behavior would be considered totally normal in another sport. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of it is that you can actually hear everything that he's saying because of the way that the courts are miked. Like if Kevin Garnett was miked in the same way that Nick Kyrgios is, we'd probably think about him a lot differently, but also there are some ways in which the rules of tennis um, are unique and seem uh, kind of unreasonable or are not sensible. And so he he kind of bridles against them.
0: Yeah, he. In th- there is this sort of tradition in tennis. It's sort of like unwritten rules in baseball. There was another match over the weekend in which Rafael Nadal called out his opponent, an Italian player, during the match about something that he was done. And then when the match ended, Nadal had this sort of long appeared to be giving him a lengthy lecture at the net after they had shaken hands. And then Nadal apologized later in his press conference for doing that publicly and said I should have done it in the locker room. And I talked to him afterward, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Curios is an outlier. He's like McEnroe, you know, in the, in the 80s um, and Jimmy Connors. Um, and with Kyrgios, it's even trickier. And this goes back to the conversation we had with Louisa a few years ago. Um, it's risky to psychoanalyze athletes, but Kyrgios is out there. Um, he admits to what he's doing. He claims that he loves being the bad guy. He buys into his own narrative, and he knows when to turn it up and turn it down. Um, on Monday, in his uh, Round of 16 match... He behaved pretty well. The only thing that he did that seemed to be sort of pushing it and rude was at one point near the end, he said he's done about his opponent, um, Brandon Nakashima, an American. But at the same time, we know because he's talked about it, that Kyrgios also has had mental health issues. In February, he posted on social media that in 2019, he had had suicidal thoughts and cut himself on his arm. I was lonely, depressed, negative, abusing alcohol, drugs, pushed away family and friends, he wrote. Um, You know, after the Nakashima match, he talked about how far he had come to sit here, quarterfinals of Wimbledon, feeling good, feeling composed, feeling mature. I'm extremely blessed. I feel like I'm just comfortable in my own skin. I mean, how do you ignore what happened two days earlier against Tsitsipas? I mean, against Nakashima, he tanked a game, He maybe exaggerated an injury, so maybe I underplayed what he had done in the Nakashima match. Um, You mentioned him spitting toward a fan earlier in the tournament and abusing officials on the court. Um, You know, that on top of the fact that he knew about this domestic abuse charge that he would be facing. I mean, this just remains, I don't know, this is a complicated dude.
2: I was going to ask you all about that. Did Sisipas by any chance know that Curios had that charge coming out there because he kept talking about bullying and off-the-court stuff in a way that I found to be not suspicious, but just like, hmm. Like, it was really pointed, I thought, like, that criticism. And I was like, oh, in retrospect, I was like, I wonder if he knew that that was coming down the pike or if somebody had told him about Especially if this is a guy you already don't like, you've got this history with, this is sort of like your nemesis, that that's a way to sort of denigrate him without coming out and and raising that as an issue.
1: I don't think it's possible for us to know that, but there is a kind of behind-the-scenes dynamic in the sport that Kyrgios alluded to in his press conference, Mm -hmm. because Tsitsipas had talked about nobody likes you in reference to Kyrgios, and Kyrgios says, everybody in the locker room likes me. I'm great with everyone. Nobody likes you. There is like a classroom, recess, child kind of dynamic here, where these are... A bunch of dudes who travel the world together in this very kind of like testosterone masculinized recess kind of environment. And there are cliques and there are, you know, people that are, you know, better or worse at getting along with each other or care more or less about cultivating those relationships. But Kurios also said, "Like I love his brother." In terms to uh, about Sitsipas, who has a brother who also plays tennis. They played doubles together, curious and Sitsipas. And you're in D.C. in 2019. Yeah. I was at a singles match they played against each other in D.C. where um, Sitsipas like had an issue with his shoes, and Kurios went and got some new shoes for Sitsipas from the stands and brought them over and like knelt and handed them to it in a like really lighthearted and fun. Moment, um, they've had it seemed like kind of detente in the past, but like this all started, or maybe it didn't start here. But there was just a, this like moment that sort of crystallizes both how how stupid this can be, but also the fundamental issue with these people. That like Sisyphus posted one of his like kind of thoughtful, philosophical, and kind of cringy tweets. I think this was in like two thousand nineteen, and Curious just responded, Defuck, fuck, da." F-U-Q, and then deleted it. Um, and that's how they they kind of um, interacted or corresponded with each other. These are just like very different sorts of people. And I do think it's maybe not surprising that Stefan sees the like sensitive Greek man as the like wronged... Uh, <laughs> oh, you called him soft. As the wronged party here. But like he was acting like a petulant child and like engaging in some pretty dangerous behavior on the mm-hmm. court like only one person was like risking the health of like spectators um and his opponent in that match and it was oh, I,
0: that's what i said he got baited into it he is not blame free here he got sucked in to this which is exactly what nick curios wanted to do it worked but i think the other thing that that i would and he did apologize by the way josh after the match he said i was completely wrong and i shouldn't have done that
1: Kyrgios has apologized a million times for things that he's done, and sometimes he doesn't apologize. But the other thing I would kind of quibble with in your analysis, Stefan, is that I think you're kind of overplaying how um, tactical Kyrgios is with this stuff. I I think maybe 25% of the time he is. But, like, after he lost to Nadal at Indian Wells, after the match was over, he spiked his racket into the ground and nearly hit a ball person. He has been defaulted from matches and gotten point penalties and tanked matches because he mm-hmm. was mad. Um, ben Rothenberg tweeted recently that whenever anything goes wrong with Kyrgios, he finds somebody to blame the umpire, the lines person, a fan. And I think a lot of the time, if it gets on his opponent or in his opponent, it's just, I don't know if it's right to say it's a coincidence, but I'm not sure that Kyrgios is totally in control. Of who he is and what he's doing on the court in those moments. And there's, part of it is sad um, that he seems like he has real issues that he's, that he's talked about, that he's not able to manage and control. It also feels sad, as you alluded to, that this is him. He's in a moment now where he's talking about how healthy he is and how he's in a much better place than he is before. And that if this is him in a better place, then that doesn't, Necessarily seem great. So, and then the the final kind of layer here. He's playing a quarterfinal on Wednesday against Christian Green of of Chile. Is that he is playing unbelievably well yeah. in this tournament. And he's a uh, when he's on, he is just a great great grass court player. Unbreakable serve, and he could win this tournament. And this is a tournament where Wimbledon banned Russian players because they didn't want. I think the P, the bad PR of having to give a Russian um, a trophy during Putin's war. This is also a tournament where they did absolutely nothing to mitigate COVID from the fan or player perspective. And so you've had all these players, including Berrettini, the second batting favorite, have to withdraw because they had COVID. Um, it might end up with, you know, Kyrgios getting handed the trophy and saying basically like as he said in these play in these press conferences like fuck all y'all like i'm happy that everyone you know it, it's and and fans love him and and are cheering for him and all these matches the fans were on his side in the Paz match yeah. they were definitely on his side in the nakashima match and this is like a problem that tennis is gonna have to deal with and has shown absolutely no interest or ability to deal with um for years now and i have they're they're not going to deal with it and so it's just whatever's going to happen with it it is going to happen um without anybody saying or or doing anything he's gonna just totally implode at at some point um and it's probably going to be in this tournament if history is any guide but maybe it'll be the next one or the one after well if he
0: if he gets by his next match and makes it to the semifinals. He is. It's shaping up that he'll have
1: to play Nadal. And he wow! Disrespectful of Taylor Fritz, but continue. I said if,
0: and and he had a run in with Nadal. I mean, Nadal He's had many he
1: run ins with Nadal, and and beating Nadal at Wimbledon in twenty fourteen was twenty
0: fourteen when he
1: was like eighteen years old, right? Yeah, that um, was that was what put him on the map.
0: And you know, like Rafael Nadal is like the nicest guy, and maybe it's people like Nadal, you know, and people like Tsitsipas, a little bit sincere a little bit genuine, a little bit emotional that get under his skin. I mean, this is a guy that, you know, Rafael Nadal, one of the greatest, the three greatest players of all time. You know, he he posted a clip after a match when they got into it three years ago and said, I can smell the blood when I play this dude.
1: I mean... Well, well Joel, before we go, I think the question for you is how much of this is like tennis people getting kind of wound up because it's a country mm-hmm. club sport. Kyrgios loves basketball. He's, wears, he's been wearing Jordans. He had the Dennis Rodman shirt in that press conference. He was he's like, been oh. changing
0: into his Jordans after each match and putting on a red Jordan cap in violation of Wimbledon's rules that require you to be in all white when you're on the court.
1: All right, one one more thing, and then then I'll give you the floor, Joel. Like, one of the more ridiculous things he said in the press conference was, like, like when he was calling Pass soft, he was like, he said you know, I play against dogs back in Australia. When I play pickup basketball, <laughs> when, I, when I play pickup basketball, like, I don't play, I play against tough guys. Like, how much do you feel like the conversation would be different or should be different about curious if you played another sport?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's totally, uh, you know, because of the particulars of uh, the country club set at tennis that people are tripping about this. Like, I, you know, you don't want to downplay the... Um, the charges that he's facing right now but irrespective of that like his swag in fact a friend of mine who is a hang up and listen uh re- listener um was trying to get me into watching more tennis by putting this guy in my face he's like oh this guy man you know it's the tats the chains you know the dennis rodman shirt like his swag didn't seem to come from tennis
1: That's exactly what he says, that he's good for the sport. Everybody Mm -hmm. who says he's bad for the sport, look at the stands are always full and everybody's cheering for him. That's his, that's his argument. And there's, it's a good argument.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I, in fact, I saw the thing. I was like, who is, who is this cat? I've never seen anybody in tennis that looks like that. You know what I mean? And we haven't even talked about
1: like the drop shots and the underarm serves and like he is incredibly charismatic on the court and just an, unbelievable talent such a he's a he's the best server in tennis nobody can serve as hit his spots and serve as fast as he does and that's and he's why.
0: creative he's huge he's fast um he's a brilliant shot returner Josh I mean when he is on clearly he's on this has been the running conversation about Nick curios for almost a decade that if if He can conquer his mental health issues, his attitude issues. You know, and again, a lot of this is finger-wagging, lecturing from the tennis establishment um, that he should be winning or would be winning major championships.
1: Yeah, and I was looking back at a press conference from—he might have been a teenager, but it was long ago at Wimbledon. Um, It was, you know, mid-2015, 2016, the same conversations were being had about— Nick Curios. and he was asked if he liked tennis or loved tennis. Um, and he said, you know, not really. There are times that I don't, but like, I don't know what else I would be doing. There are ways that this conversation just seems like, can seem like finger wagging. But having watched this guy and heard, heard this guy, the way he talks about himself, it just really feels like it's not going to end well. And it also feels like he might win Wimbledon, which might... It, it feels very Tim Anderson to me.
2: I don't know, how, maybe, maybe I don't know enough about it, but this feels very Tim Anderson to me, that, you know, great athlete, could have done anything, this was a smarter play, and he doesn't quite fit in with people's idea of what a tennis player should be, in the same way that Tim Anderson doesn't fit in with what baseball people's idea of what a baseball player should be.
1: There are similarities, but Tim Anderson only disrespects the game if you're an idiot or if you're a racist. Like, he doesn't berate officials. He doesn't spit at fans. Mm-hmm. He doesn't um, insults his opponents. And he doesn't seem to have any kind of mental health I- issues. And he hasn't talked about cutting himself for having suicidal thoughts. So, like, th- there, there's just, like, a real kind of sadness and darkness mm-hmm. here. Um, and if we just say that like oh people just don't like his swag i think it like does him a disservice like he's like a guy who's like really hurt it he's talked about how he's hurting and if we actually listen to him and what he said and look at mm-hmm. his behavior
2: i just want i'm mean, i'm not saying there's a one for one 1 on 1 comparison but like it could be the curious is more vulnerable in a way that a lot of other athletes in that position would not be and some of that is being a solo player like you don't get to hide behind your team or your clubhouse right he's out right. there and i'm just i'm i'm thinking also of naomi osaka who's like been very vocal about like the mental health issues she's had. I I wonder if like
1: Kyrios was the first guy to sign up with Osaka's yeah. agency. He like clearly has aligned himself yeah. with her. And then, you know, we just have this looming domestic violence yeah. allegation. Um and so even if you feel sympathetic towards him in some ways, it's just like, how far can you go with that? Yeah. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay.
0: On Monday, July 4th, the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest was held back at Coney Island after COVID um, pushed it to other venues, less public and less crowded. Uh, The winner was the legend, Joey Chestnut, 63 dogs in 10 minutes, 15th title in 16 years. On the women's side, Mickey Sudo, 40 dogs in 10 minutes. Not her record, 48 and a half in 2020. The thing about her, she is married to another competitive eater. Very sweet. They met at uh, the Nathan's contest back in 2018. She had to take last year off uh, after giving birth. But my favorite winner of the weekend was another legendary competitor, Eric Badlands Booker. He won the uh, the lemonade chugging contest. It was like a gallon in like 24 seconds. I think we have a clip of that and Travis Paradise spilling a little of that pink lemonade. Badlands Booker, T. Kenny, T. Kenny is pushing Badlands. T. Kenny's pushing Badlands, but Badlands, he's going for it. Badlands Booker. Oh! Oh my glory. With a new World record of one gallon of Nathan's hot Nathan's lemonade. Badlands, how do you feel? Uh,
2: oh, excuse the bad manners. Sorry.
1: Woo, that was awesome.
0: <laughs> I went to Badlands Wikipedia page. It's a trip. Some of his uh, accomplishments: 15 Qdoba burritos in eight minutes, 16 and a half cannoli in six minutes. 49 glazed donuts in eight minutes. 50 hamantashen in like six minutes. 21 baseball-sized half-pound matzo balls, five minutes and 25 seconds. I thought you
1: were going to say 21 baseballs. That would have, that would have changed the game. That
0: would have been more impressive, actually. Four and three-eighths pu-
1: Entenmann's pumpkin pies in 12 minutes. That doesn't seem like that many pies compared to the other numbers. Hmm, Pretty big. That record seems breakable, Joel. It seems breakable. Mm. That's all I'm saying. Mm.
0: Go for it, Josh. Something to
1: aspire to.
0: Um, What about eight and a half ounces of uh, Maui onions, three onions in one minute? That was way back in 2004 at the beginning of his career.
1: Joel, do you have any good competitive eating uh, accomplishments?
2: One time, friends and I uh, went to Wings and Things on Westheimer in Houston, (laughs) and I think we ate all 75 wings we ordered. When I was like 19 years old, so that's—I mean, I thought that was pretty impressive. How many friends? Two, just me, just me and my uh, oh, my, my best friend at the time. So yeah,
1: mm-hmm. we cleaned yeah, it up
0: 37 and a half wings each. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, world's hungriest
1: 19-year-old um, <laughs> Joel. What is your Badlands Booker?
2: Well, speaking of which, uh, you know, is as, as someone who started in track at the age of 10. I've always just kind of wondered how people get into pole vaulting. Like, how do you figure out that you might be good at it? Like, where do you get to practice? Um, In a lot of ways, I've thought of pole vaulters as people that are not all that dissimilar from airplane pilots. Like, I'm glad someone likes doing it, but it couldn't be me. Uh, But the reason I bring all this up is that this weekend, over and over again, for the first time that I can remember, people were sharing video of a pole vault attempt on social media. And the tweet read, Slow motion of 17-year-old Mondo Duplantis' record-breaking jump. And it went about as viral as a pole vaulting tweet can go. They got 22,000 retweets and almost 158,000 likes as of Tuesday morning. Uh, some of our listeners even sent it to me. Shout out John Simwark. And when I looked a little closer, I realized the video was actually from 2018. And what I was watching was Mondo Duplantis break the world record for under 20 athletes at about 19 feet and one and a half inches. And that didn't make it any less impressive. I mean, just go look at the video. He looks like he has rockets in his ass. But now I had to go find out who Mando Duplantis was. And thankfully, uh, Josh had done an afterball on this dude four years ago. Uh, but I was curious to know what he'd been doing over the past four years. And as it turns out, it's been quite a bit. Uh, as a reminder, Mando Duplantis, and well, his real name is Armand Duplantis, was born in Lafayette, Louisiana, right in the heart of Cajun country and two hours west of New Orleans. And Josh, of course, I'm sure he has mentioned and probably even has a Duplantis shirt. Uh, he's an LSU legacy. His father, Greg, pole vaulted for LSU and was fifth in the 92 Olympic trials. His mother, Helena, played two sports at LSU, competing as a heptathlete and volleyball player. His older brother, Andreas, was a pole vaulter there. And his other older brother, Antoine, was a pole vaulter before taking up baseball and becoming LSU's career hits leader in baseball. Yep, that just just gave the L sign there. Not for loser for LSU. His younger sister, Johanna, is currently a freshman pole vaulter at LSU right now. And so yet Mondo figured out a way to stand out in his own athletically accomplished family. He showed promise as a pole vaulter from a very early age. In 2015, he set national records in indoor and outdoor pole vaulting as a high school freshman. And that was also the year he decided to compete internationally for Sweden, the country of his mother's birth. And Mondo kept breaking records every year, leading up to that world junior record that went viral just this weekend. In 2020, he was named World Athletic's Male Athlete of the Year. Last summer, he won gold at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. And the mystery as to why that particular jump recirculated so recently was answered when I learned that Mondo is still vaulting and still breaking records. At a Diamond League meet last week in Stockholm, where he now lives, Mondo broke his own world record for the sixth time in the past two and a half years. And you know what? I learned that at least overseas, pole vaulting is a big part of the show. Here's a clip.
0: So we go back inside the track, Mondo Duplantis with the former world record holder, Renaud Lavillanie of France. Greg Duplantis, Mondo's dad and his coach, and everyone on their feet. 20 feet, two and a half inches, six meters, 16. No man has ever cleared this height outdoors in history.
2: And now one has. That's right. Mondo cleared 20 feet and two inches for yet another world record. And next month, he'll be in Oregon attempting to push the record even higher for the world championships. And the reason I keep bringing this track meet up is that I hope somebody will just invite me and send me a you know, a charter jet and uh, give me some tickets to the press box. So I'm I'm not above accepting that uh, if the USATF would like to do that for me. But anyway, Josh, had you been keeping up with the exploits of Mondo over the last four years since your afterball?
1: Yeah. So listeners will surely recall that in 2018, I said that he was going to win the Olympic gold medal in 2020, which a prediction I got wrong because... The Olympics were in 2021, did not foresee the pandemic. But yeah, like, this guy's unbelievable. And I I did see that video go around and was also kind of confused about why that particular video of him was going around. And I think it's just that pole vaulting looks incredibly weird in slow motion. It is a very strange sport. And I think the answer to the question of how you become a pole vaulter is that maybe your family, everyone in your family is a (laughs) pole vaulter. But he's like, clearly had a lot of training and the technique, had a lot of uh, opportunities to nurture it, and is an incredible athlete. And so uh, that's uh, a potent combination. And the choice to represent Sweden instead of the US has turned out to be um, incredibly smart. He got um, opportunities to compete um, for world championships at a younger age. And as you heard in that, that you played, Joel, from The Meet in Stockholm, he's achieved a level of fame and popularity there that he would never have been able to achieve in the US. Like, he's one of the most famous people in Sweden, probably. Um, And he has a very nice Swedish girlfriend. So uh, I'm just glad to see that someone from Louisiana is showing off the characteristic smarts and wiliness (laughs) of uh, a Louisianan.
2: Wiliness, I mean, I don't know what wildiness and Lafayette, they seem to really go hand in hand. It really does. I don't know what it is about it, but it does seem to match up. So, yes.
1: But, yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made. I mean, cross sports comparisons are often ridiculous. But in terms of the level of dominance and the way that he's pushing his sport and is kind of competing against himself, he is just one of the world's greatest athletes in in any sport. Um, And so it's kind of cool to see him getting this level of like mainstream attention that you wouldn't typically see a poll vaulter get.
0: Can I just quickly add that Joel, you work for a news organization? If you could persuade your editor. To perhaps send you to the World Track Championships, put together two or three story ideas, little journalistic. Oh, I just tip. want to hang out. You I might mean, be able I don't, to go.
2: I, yeah, I don't. I, don't, don't I, want to have I to just work. want to. I don't want to work. Yeah, I just want to watch. It's uh, uh but you know what? <laughs> I, maybe that maybe that is a conversation I should have offline.
3: <laughs> Joel has Joel
1: forget. has said publicly on this very podcast he can't go. Oh. So he's sending very mixed messages, mm-hmm. but maybe we can maybe, we can, straighten mm-hmm. this, maybe we can straighten this and why out. Why don't
0: you guys talk about it after the show and report back next week?
2: Yeah, we'll figure something out.
1: That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.